This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors. Does anyone want to hear anything except about the thwarted plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer and overthrow Michigan government. Can you believe this? We've had just maybe the most incredible week in Michigan political history. Well, for at least a century anyway. Think about it. Beginning Friday, October 2nd, we had the diagnosis that President Donald Trump had tested positive for COVID-19 and then was hospitalized for four days at Walter Reed Medical Center in the nation's capital. The same day here in Michigan came the shocking announcement from the state Supreme Court that the laws Governor Gretchen Whitmer has been relying on for half a year to issue a state of emergency and then some 125 executive orders to lock down Michiganders were unconstitutional and illegal. The reaction, depending on your point of view, has ranged from anger to applause, confusion to signs of hope for a new path forward in dealing with the coronavirus, and all the way around uncertainty, even as we talk and listen right now about what comes next and when. Then we had a vice presidential debate on national TV between the two major party nominees, Democrat Kamala Harris and Republican incumbent Mike Pence. All this while there's a general election campaign going on leading up to November 3rd involving the U.S. Senate, 14 congressional races, contests for 110 seats in the state House of Representatives, two seats on the Supreme Court, a bunch of other statewide races, and more than 11,000 competitions that must be decided all the way down to local K-12 school boards, road commissioners, and even library boards. Yes, that all seems trivial now, but it's not. And accordingly, the state Senate returned to session this week as Republican leadership hurriedly compiled bills that could codify certain executive orders issued by Governor Gretchen Whitmer during the COVID-19 pandemic. Among the first items on the to-do list are protecting workers receiving unemployment insurance benefits, ensuring COVID-19 testing procedures, and allowing local governments to meet remotely for the time being. Let's see what happens next. All this is necessary because, as I said a minute ago, the Michigan Supreme Court issued an order late last week knocking out the legal underpinnings of Governor Whitmer's emergency orders. The governor claims that her orders remain in effect temporarily. On Monday of this past week, she filed a motion asking the court to confirm whether that is the case. The court, which had opined on a federal case in which a judge had asked for state input, said the governor had no authority to declare a state of emergency under the 1976 Emergency Management Act or the 1945 so-called Riot Act, the latter of which the court found unconstitutional. 
constitutional. Whitmer had been using this state of emergency, she declared, under the two laws to issue executive orders and put restrictions on things like business operations, gathering limits, and personal movement as the state grappled with the coronavirus pandemic. But others have cast doubt on whether executive orders with unconstitutional underpinnings really continue at all. The Mackinac Center, who were the winning plaintiffs in the lawsuit before the Supreme Court, say that what Whitmer claims is somewhat beside the point, since there's not an avenue through which the executive orders can be enforced in the meantime. And Dana Nessel, the attorney general, seems to confirm that. She is saying she will not enforce any of the governor's orders at this point. The Mackinac Center also says, and I'm quoting here, even if the governor is not really uh, correct or is correct, it really doesn't matter for this reason. Nobody is going to arrest somebody off of something the Supreme Court says is unconstitutional. Nobody is going to prosecute off something the Supreme Court says is unconstitutional. Now, I'm going to turn to something completely different, even if it seems like small potatoes by comparison. Which party is going to control the State House of Representatives next year? Democrats who are in the minority in the State House are heavily investing in five legitimate pickup opportunities and defending all of their incumbents, period. If they win, these are the Democrats, if they win four of the five pickups and return all of their incumbents, they will take the majority with 56 seats. Now, the Republicans, for their part, are expanding the field, aggressively pursuing the Bay City seat and the Livonia seat on the theory that they may need a pickup or two to stay at 56 members or even break even at 55-55. So let's just look at which are the top races. The 38th House District in southern Oakland County around Novi, uh, Kathy Crawford, the incumbent, is term limited. The Democratic nominee, who did very well two years ago, came close to beating Crawford, is back running again against Chase Turner, a young Republican. Watch that one. 39th House District, just north of there, on the ground, reports say that Commerce Township Republican Ryan Berman is in real trouble against the Democratic nominee Julia Pulver, who was endorsed this week by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Then there's the 61st House District. Uh, that is down in Portage in suburban Kalamazoo. Uh, this is one race the Democrats thought they had in the bag with their nominee, Christine Morse, but it's amazing that Republican Bronwyn Haltom, a young 27-year-old female nominee, is still making this a race. Now, in the 45th District, now that's back over in Oakland County, eastern Oakland County, Rochester, Democrats have Barb Aness, or Annes, A-N-N-E-S-S, uh, running in an open seat, 
against a very good Republican nominee, Mark Tisdale. The 96th House District, this is up in Bay City, and it involves an incumbent Democrat that Republicans are aiming at. And it looks like with Tim Beeson, they may have a chance to beat Brian Elder, who is up on television. I've seen his ads, which you wouldn't expect from a Democrat running for re-election in Bay City. We'll see what happens. In the 104th House District, this is an open seat in the Traverse City area, Grand Traverse County, open seat. You have got the Democratic nominee, an attorney named Dan O'Neill, who came close to knocking off an incumbent two years ago, running again. And he is opposed by a Republican, John Roth, R-O-T-H. And it looks like that's going to be a cliffhanger. This is a traditionally Republican seat, but the city of Traverse City is trending Democratic. 43rd House District, Oakland County. Uh, Again, Andrea Schoeder, Republican incumbent from Independence Township, is fending off a challenge from Democrat Nicole Breeden. And in Macomb County, uh, incumbent Democrat Nate Shannon is getting a stiff challenge from Paul Smith, a Republican in the 66th. You've got Democrat Abigail Wheeler trying to knock off Republican incumbent Beth Griffin. 48th in Genesee County, Democrat Cheryl Kennedy trying to hold on from a stiff challenge against Republican Dave Martin. We'll talk about this more between now and November 3rd. I'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and no, we're not going to talk about the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer. We're turning to something that is really important long-term, and we have just the man here with us to explain what this is all about. It's the two-ballot proposal statewide on November 3rd, or if you're voting mail-in or by absentee right now, you can see it on your ballot. Uh, Two-ballot proposals, I think they're going to be called on the ballot Proposal 2020-1 and Proposal 2020-2. And we have Eric Lufer, president of the Citizens Research Council, with us. Eric Lufer, welcome to the Political Insider. Bill, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Okay, let's take Proposal 2002 first. 2020, I should say, two. The right. second proposal first, because that is the simpler, easier one to explain. So take it away, Eric. Yeah, let me start by saying that the Citizens Research Council is a private, not-for-profit organization that works with state and local government to try to explain different issues. In this case, we try to explain to people what they're voting on because they're cast as uh, policymakers in this choice. We don't oppose or endorse these ballot issues. We're just trying to do an education effort. Let me start uh, the outset, sort of uh, cover this. The Both proposals are put on the ballot by the legislature. Often we get petitions circulated to put these questions on the ballot. This time it was a legislature. But nothing happens unless the people vote to approve these questions. So Proposal 2 is 
pretty straightforward. We have in our Michigan Constitution, in Article 1, which is all about the Declaration of Rights, Section 11 protects the persons, houses, papers, and possessions from unreasonable search and seizure. So Proposal 2 would require warrants now for electronic data and electronic communications. So it would give it the same sort of status that we have. And this parallels what we have in the U.S. Bill of Rights. It's almost the exact same language. Um, and, and so now your property would include electronic data and, and electronic communications. The bottom line with our analysis that nothing much changes because of this. Law enforcement has already been treating electronic data and communications as something that they have to get a warrant for. Uh, they don't just go in and, and tap into it and, and dig through it. Uh, it can include a lot of things. You think about how our lives have become so ingrained with our telephones and our laptop computers and everything else and how much data is stored in there. So it's very significant what we're talking about. Um, but very little change. We found that 12 states have protections for electronic data in their constitutions. Missouri's is the only one that comes close to what we're proposing here in this question. Yeah, so Eric, let me let me just yeah go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say, basically, this is playing catch-up ball in a sense. I mean, the people at the Constitutional Convention in 1961-62, they could not foresee how electronic communications uh, were going to take over our culture in the matter of 60 years. And so basically we're saying, hey, come on, we've got to get up to date and do a little fine-tuning to the language in the Constitution, right? That's the bottom line, yeah. It's, it's putting in the Constitution what we're living with in our common lives today. Right. Okay, let's get to Proposal 1 because, boy, that is really complex, and yet it seems pretty simple. Uh, is this going to confuse voters? What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a real chance um, that they're not quite going to understand what they're voting for. And as we've gone through and done the history of this bill, I think a lot of it, you've probably seen this coming over and over as you've been covering politics in Michigan. It started in 1976, uh, the idea to take the money that we're getting from oil and gas royalties and rents when companies are mining on state land and locking it up so that the, the it will help our natural resources and our trust fund. So what Proposal 1 would do would amend Article 9, Sections 35, and 35A that relate to the Michigan Natural Resources Trust Fund and the Michigan State Parks Endowment Fund. Uh, it would take all that money from the, from those sources and uh, it puts them into a trust fund, in, into a pot of money that the legislature and the governor can't touch. They can only use the proceeds from it. The money is invested in the earnings from that and the interest gained on that. They would be able to use, are able to use that for investing so we have more land and for hunting and beaches and the parks in our cities, uh, you know, ski trails and snowmobile trails. And you can sort of think about all the types of things that we in Michigan with all our beautiful scenery are able to use. So this has existed, as I said, going back to the 1970s. Over time, it's grown how big that pot of money should be and what the types of things it'll be used for. So here we go again and try to understand how this plays out. 
so when these pots of money were set up, as I said, they, they said, let's make it this big. And when it gets to that level, then the money will start going back to the general fund and pay for corrections and police, state police and all the types of things the general fund uses it for. This proposal would say, no, let's not do that. Let's make sure that all money coming from oil and gas bonuses and royalties and rents continues to go for natural resources and state parks. Uh, and it would change some of the definitions and some of the uses that that money can be used for. So right now, it can only use, be used for new development projects, so buying new land or putting up a new building, um, new equipment on the, in the parks types of things. Now it would allow for renovation and redevelopment of some of those things. Right now, the, um, the fund limit to 25% how much can be used for new development, and that would the proposal would change that to a minimum, so it has to to spend 25% on new development. And it goes on to make changes, um, how much money should be used for acquisition and development and to allow some of the money to be used to pay administrative costs where it couldn't do that before. So it gets really complicated sort of shifting things around and what can be used for and what can it be used for. Bottom line is it's all natural resources and uh, state parks that it can be used for. In our analysis, it really boils down to uh, the term earmarking, the idea that we're locking money away and the legislature and the governor can't use it in the future. Well, that sounds great if you're a natural resources fan, if you go enjoy these things, but we have to think about the big picture. Uh, the, the fund isn't likely to tap out, to, to cap out till 2050, they're saying, somewhere like, so we're talking 30 years in the future, should this money be locked up? We don't know what sort of condition the state budget will be in then. We don't know what the state priorities will be. Maybe we want to dedicate a lot of money to natural resources and, and state parks, but maybe we don't. And and so the question is, why are we locking this up now? Uh, you know, clearly natural resources are very important in Michigan, but it's a question of prioritizing and whether this should be locked up in the Constitution or left to the discretion of the legislature. Yeah, it's interesting. Even if this passes, you're saying that probably it's not going to have any practical effect for another 30 years? Yeah, I mean, so it, it allows, should it all be de- development or you, can you allow it for renovation and redevelopment? So some of that changes would have take effect now, but really you're looking 30 years down the road, the biggest part of this change, whether that money continues to go for natural resources or, or gets changed over to the general fund. It's really far in the future. You know, and this is a little crystal ball gazing because how much money we get depends on the market prices of oil and the, the value of uh, mining, that type of stuff. But it's it's hard to say, why are we doing this now other than maybe the politics are right? Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, legislature doesn't very often look into the future, as you know. They usually deal with crises at hand. Now they're looking forward. So I would think environmentalists ought to like this. Okay, uh, well, listen, uh, we could talk about this some more, but you have given a terrific explanation. Thank you so much. You've educated our electorate. Eric Lufer, president of the Citizens Research Council, thanks for being our guest on The Political Insider. Bill, tell everyone they can go to our website, crcmich.org, to find more information. We'll do it, and we'll be back in a minute. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we have on the line with us Fred Zwolick, and he's the spokesman for Unlock Michigan, which is the group 
that scored a phenomenal success with over half a million signatures gathered in the space of roughly two months. It was unbelievable. I haven't seen a petition drive this successful in a long, long time in Michigan, maybe ever, and they filed those petitions to expunge the 1945 so-called Riot Act, the government, excuse me, Governor Emergency Powers Act of 1945, with the Secretary of State. She has got to process the petitions and their signatures and send it to the legislature, which will then have 40 days in which to decide whether it wants to accept the petition language and enact it into law without the governor's signature or do nothing or vote it down, in which case it will go on the ballot in 2022. So Fred Zwolick, the spokesman for Unlock Michigan, thank you for being our guest. Thanks for having me, Bill. So, Fred, you filed these petitions, I believe, like a week ago, right? Friday, I think That's it was right, October last Friday. 2nd. Yeah. So what, what? A little more than 539,000, and we collected those in 80 days, which is a bit of a land speed record. Yeah, this is unbelievable how fast you did it. And now that you've got it before the Secretary of State, the big question is how long is it going to take the Secretary of State to process these petitions, meaning fly-specking the John Hancocks on the signatures, determining whether they're valid or not, whether you meet the threshold for uh, this particular initiative, which is 340,000 roughly signatures. And you've, as you say, you've handed in almost 200,000 more than that. So what about that? Yeah, spoiler alert, we have enough signatures to, to qualify this. And, you know, if, if the Secretary of State's office had to process all 539,000 signatures and review them for, you know, for, uh, being correct, that would be a really big job. But that's not the way they do it. They draw a sample of just 500 signatures and then evaluate and validate that sample. Clearly, they can get that work done in the next month or two. The director of elections, Jonathan Brader, uh, filed a sworn statement with the federal courts in one of their lawsuits saying that their process to review initiative petitions takes approximately 60 days. So we intend to hold them to that. If they can get it done, they should, and they must. I mean, this is the people's business. This isn't optional. Uh, The Constitution holds the legislature to a very strict 40-day schedule, and and it's designed to give the people prompt consideration of the law that they've proposed. And so it seems kind of silly to me that the Constitution would require this quick uh, follow-through by the legislature but then intend to give the Secretary of State as much time as she wants to dawdle. That would just be silly. So we think this should be done very promptly in the legislature. This legislature should be able to vote on it this year. That seems reasonable, but uh, Jonathan Brader's boss, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, has butted in and said, well, you know, really the average amount of time we usually take on efforts of this sort is like over 100 days. What about that? Yeah, she said the average has been 105 days. She coincidentally said that on the day where there was only 100 days left in the calendar year. You know, I'm sure that was just a coincidence that she pulled that number out. <laughs> um, but, you know, she's, she's touted herself as being very process-driven and wanting fairness and integrity in the, in the process. And so we'll just, you know, take her at her word on that. Uh, they can get it done much quicker than that. 
toward the end of the 2018 um, cycle, the folks who were proposing Proposal 3 uh, turned in their signatures in July, and Ruth Johnson's team had to qualify that initiative in just 53 days, and they got it done. Uh, because they had a deadline, and so they made it work, and they allocated the resources that are required. The Secretary of State's office told us they had a really hard time finding enough temporary help to do this sort of thing. So we were nice enough to ask our activists to volunteer if they were willing to be temporary help for the Secretary of State's office. And our understanding is over 150 of our supporters volunteered by email to help out the Bureau of Elections. So we hope they'll take them up on it. Well, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the magic date, November 3rd, the general election. If the Republicans retain control of the state House, they've already got control of the state Senate. We'll have that through 2022. It really doesn't make any difference how long the secretary of state takes in terms of getting the thing to a legislature that would be controlled by Republicans who supposedly would support it and enact it into law. But if on November 3rd, the Democrats gain control of the state house, they would take over the state house beginning in January. And if the secretary of state drags her feet up until January, you would then have a democratic controlled house and a Republican controlled Senate. And the chances will diminish that this will be, approved by both chambers of the legislature, and it may never be enacted, in which case it would go on the ballot in 2022. Is that right? And how do you look at that whole situation? Um, that's the, the sequence of events. Now, it was fully our intent that this get to this legislature this year. And, you know, I, there's no reason for the Secretary of State to drag their feet on, on validating these signatures. We made it as easy for them to do as possible. We got it done in very short order. If we had wanted it to go to next year's legislature, we would have taken the full 180 days to collect the signatures. Instead, we got it done 100 days quicker so that there would be plenty of time for this legislature to vote on it this year. But if Governor Whitmer decides that she'd rather run for re-election with this on the ballot alongside her, I wish her good luck with that. Well, uh, that would be the alternative. Yeah. You know, if, they, if they dawdle until you know 2021 to, to get to work on this, then the governor will face the prospect of running for re-election with this on the ballot alongside of her. And that may or may not be a great idea. Yeah. Honestly, the way things have been developing and evolving over the last few weeks and months, who knows at the end of 2022, whether that will be an asset or a liability for Gretchen Whitmer. if She's running for re-election with this on the ballot. Let me ask you this though, with a Supreme court decision, Coming down on almost, I think, the same day you filed the petitions, the Supreme Court decision yep. saying that the uh, 1945 Riot Act uh, is unconstitutional, as well as the 76 uh, Emergency Management Act. Some people are saying, well, your petitions are totally irrelevant now. Who cares about your petitions? The court has already said. Uh, the 45 Act is unconstitutional and illegal, and your petitions say, let's just expunge, get rid of the 45 Riot Act. Well, what's the difference between getting rid of it and having the highest court in the state say it's completely unconstitutional and unworkable? Justice Markman uh, authored a pretty compelling opinion of the court explaining exactly why it was unconstitutional. 
and why a lot of other laws might be unconstitutional, too, that the legislature doesn't actually have the power to give away its power, you know, in a wholesale way, the way they did uh, with the, the so-called Riot Act. But it was a four to three decision, and Justice Markman, the author, is retiring. Uh, the two Democrats running for the Supreme Court have been openly, you know, campaigning on the fact that they're going to overturn this if given the chance. Uh, Elizabeth Welsh is a very, you know, pretty active, progressive uh, lawyer, and is and they're fundraising off of the idea that they'll get to re- undo this if if they take control of the court next year. So we kind of look at this as like one of those Freddy Krueger movies where you just got to kill the thing off and then and just keep killing it until it's really really dead. And and the way to do that is for us to finish what we started, which is just repealing this law and getting it off the books entirely, so that a, a different four three court in the future couldn't uh, undo what we've uh, what was happening in the courts just last week. Yeah, that's a really good thought. I mean, in other words, uh, courts can always change their mind. I mean, they're supposed to be what is called stare decisis, and that is whatever court rules kind of stays in place for future courts. But we notice that uh, that doesn't always work. Uh, Listen, we can keep talking about this, uh, Fred Zwolick, but we're out of time. And I want to thank you so much for being our guest. You've done a really good job of explaining what the stakes are for Unlock Michigan and for the Riot Act of 1945 uh, and the Supreme Court decision. Thank you so much, Fred Zwolick. Thanks, Bill. We'll be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back with Mike Van Beek, who's been a guest on this program before. He is the man when it comes to the history of emergency orders from a governor and the power therein. Uh, He is research director at the Mackinac Center in Midland. Mike Van Beek, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on, Bill. Okay, Mike, a heck of a lot's been going on in the last week. Uh, You know, they're actually uh, plotting to uh, kidnap the governor, but we won't talk about that. We'll talk about... Unbelievable. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, every day it's something new. But look, let's stick to the subject at hand, and that is... The Supreme Court decision a week ago on uh, the so-called Riot Act and the Emergency Management Act of 1976, Uh, how is the Mackinac Center, and you guys were the successful plaintiffs uh, in this case. You got the court to rule the way it did, much to the surprise of, I think, just about everybody. And how do you look at the situation now? Well, uh, you know, it's still uh, there's a lot of questions uh, about the legality of uh, a lot of the response to COVID still. Um, but the Supreme Court was pretty clear, um, you know, in a with a unanimous decision, um, they determined that the governor violated the 1976 law, the Emergency Management Act. And then in a four to three decision, uh, they also ruled that the Riot Act of 1945 uh, the use of it by Governor Whitmer was unconstitutional. Uh, that's an important distinction uh, that I uh, want to make because, you know, that, that law was on the books for, 40, uh, for 75 years, and governors had used it before, and they had used it in ways that didn't, uh, uh, didn't violate the Constitution. Uh, but the way that Governor Whitmer interpreted it, uh, that it allowed her to 
issue executive orders for however long she chose uh, was the problem with it that made it unconstitutional. Well, are you saying, in other words, uh, past governors like Romney and Milliken who used it actually used it in a way that the court would not have found to be unconstitutional? Well, we can't. I mean, we can't say that because they, as far as I know, they never they never uh, were asked that question specifically. But the way that former governors used it uh, didn't raise the kinds of uh, questions and problems that um, uh, that Governor Whitmer uh, created with it. There is one exception, of, of course, though, because Governor Milliken uh, did use it to ban fishing uh, on Lake uh, St. Clair and in the St. Clair River. And uh, that was ruled not at the Supreme Court, but at the lower district courts to be unconstitutional, uh, specifically because Milligan uh, attempted to just keep that emergency in place for uh, months and months. And district court judges said, uh, you can't do that. Uh, There has to be some sort of limit on when these emergencies end. Another thing that Governor Whitmer has done in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, and by the way, as I understand it, she has asked the Supreme Court uh, for an opinion on whether this uh, emergency order that she issued uh, unconstitutionally, according to the Supreme Court, should be allowed to exist for 21 days until the end of October before it's expunged. And also, she has said, I'm going to have my Department of Health and Human Services issue a few orders. In fact, I think that department had already issued these orders this past summer simultaneously with what Governor Whitmer had done. She said, I'm going to, practically speaking, have them be able to do uh, what I was doing with my executive order, and the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on their ability to do that. So practically speaking, de facto, the situation is just going to continue indefinitely the way I want it. What about that? Yeah, it's uh, the governor sending mixed messages uh, in response to this Supreme Court ruling. On on the one hand, she's saying uh, to the Supreme Court, please don't uh, enforce, don't allow, uh, you know, don't invalidate my executive orders until October 30th, uh, which I don't even know how the Supreme Court would reason they would be able to do that because they would, that would be the Supreme Court saying, we're going to allow a law to exist and uh, be enforced that we just said is unconstitutional. So I don't know how the Supreme Court would, you know, wrap their minds around uh, being that contradictory. Um, so that request is just sort of odd in that sense. Uh, but but then on the other hand, the governor is saying, uh, but it doesn't really matter anyway, because I can just do these things through another statute uh, that I have that um, I already have been using uh this sort of reinforcement uh, mechanism, which uh, is questionable as well. Um, and and so on the one hand, she's saying, please don't, buy, you know, please don't uh, uh, take away my orders. But then also I've got other orders I can use that are virtually, you know, very similar and um, will have a similar effect on how they regulate uh, behavior of people in the state. Well, I mean, are you going to challenge that, uh, the Mackinac Center? Are you going to go to the court or, and say, how can she do this? Have you done it already? Well, no, uh, we haven't uh, done done anything uh, along those lines yet. Uh, there's there's a lot of, I mean, just honestly, there's a lot of questions about uh, how this has played out, how this will play out in the courts and, and legally through, you know, referencing specifically the 
uh, Department of Health and Human Services orders, uh, because as far as I know, uh, those this kind those orders have not been attempted to be used in this way previously either. So uh, this is again like the governor's use of executive power. Uh, this is unprecedented use of executive power still again, and I think that the uh, I mean one one serious question about uh, DHS's ability to use these orders is that the statute that empowers the director to, to issue these orders seems to be just as vague and limitless and standardless as the EPGA. So in many ways, uh, it suffers from the same flaws that the EPGA had that the Supreme Court just ruled was unconstitutional. Now, the, uh, to the, uh, the, the director and the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, they might have a better legal case than the governor, potentially, because there is sort of a longer track record, historical record, case law of health departments using powers to quarantine people and to uh, force immunizations and do other things that the Supreme Court uh, at the state level and the, and the federal level have uh, allowed. So there, you know, maybe the department has a stronger legal case, but there's still a lot of questions about uh, you know, what are the parameters and guardrails on the power that the department has? And that really, effectively, it's the executive branch. It's really powers that the governor has. Yeah. One more question. Unlock Michigan, the petition drive to expunge, get rid of, wipe out the 1945 so-called Riot Act. Uh, they were filed, these petitions, a week ago. Uh this is an initiative petition, meaning a legislature can simply enact it with majority support in the House and Senate without the governor's signature. A lot of people are saying that's irrelevant now. Uh, why does anybody even care about Unlock Michigan and his petitions? Because the Supreme Court has already said the Riot Act is unconstitutional, and for that matter, so is the 76 Emergency Management Act. How do you react to that? Well, I, th- I still think it's a good uh, uh tool of governance to get rid of laws that are unconstitutional um, and repeal them. Uh, the governor obviously is not going to do that. She's said that she vehemently disagrees with the Supreme Court's decision, which suggests that she would not sign a bill um, that would repeal the 1945 Act, even though uh, the Supreme Court has said it's unconstitutional. So, uh, you know, unlike Michigan and that, uh, that initiative, I think, is still important. It's still relevant. Uh, and, you know, the 1945 Act, the Riot Act, is um, it's not needed at all. I mean, it, it simply sits there <laughs> to be a, a, a danger, essentially, because the 1976 Emergency Management Act um, is meant to deal with emergency situations. Uh, that's specifically what it is for. Um, I think through uh, actually just bad uh, or just an oversight in legislating, um, in uh, the early 90s, the legislature even added riots into the EMA as something it could address. So we really have no need for uh, the 1945 Riot Act anymore. Um, it's just duplicative, and uh, we should get rid of it. We had a guest on before you, Fred Zwolick, spokesman for Unlock Michigan. He said the two Democrats running for the Supreme Court are claiming if they get elected to the court, they might overturn the decision that was made a week ago that you guys won at that point on the uh, Riot Act and, you know, allow it to go forward. I mean, we don't have time to talk about that, uh, but it's uh, something to be considered and 
I want to thank you, Mike Van Beek, for once again giving us a very lucid explanation of where we are right now in the wake of this historic decision a week ago on the Emergency Management Act of 76 and the Riot Act of 1945 and where we go from here. Thank you, Mike Van Beek. Thanks for having me, Bill. My pleasure. We will return next week with still more. Who knows what will happen between now and then. Tune in.